Welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Scherba, and today I have the incredible pleasure of sitting down with Autumn Schultz, who's the co-founder and chief product officer at The Dips. Autumn, very excited to have you on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Why don't we just go ahead and jump right into it? Can you take us through your personal and career journey leading up to today? Yeah, yeah. Well, one, excited to be here. Two, would love to share a little more about my career and my background. I guess starting off, I'm a Chicagoan. I'm a native Chicagoan. I grew up in the suburbs and now I'm on the uh, south side of the city. Awesome. And so I've spent uh, all of my career here in Chicago. I've got a love-hate relationship with the city because it is wonderful in the summer and just awful right now (laughs) in the winter. (laughs) And every year I say, I'm uh, I'm an adult and I can move out, but I never do. Right. And then, you know, outside of living in Chicago, I'm a newish mom. My baby is 10 months old and uh, I have a partner. We've been together for 17 years. So it's been... Amazing. It's been a long time. But yeah, so as far as career goes, uh, I think... Maybe the more interesting place to start is college, uh, which feels so way back. But uh, it was like the first time having to think through a pivot in my career. So I majored in advertising art direction. And in Chicago at the time in like 2008-ish, like uh, advertising was a very big industry. And this was pre-economy collapsing. And so I was super invested in uh, being an art director, and um, I went and interned at this like big agency. And you know, it was around 2009. I was just graduating, and I had been interning at this agency for months. I, it had to be about six months. And in my mind, I was like, "Oh, this is going to lead to a job, and I'm going to like be this thing that I've been spending all this money on, right. all this art school time on." Um, and so, like. We started getting news that the economy is like crashing. I have no idea what that means because I'm like 21, 22. Right. I'm like, oh, okay, well, whatever. I'm like, obviously very talented. <laughs> like, I'm doing a good job in advertising. Like, this is the place to do it. So I kept interning and like, this was like an unpaid internship. It's like, okay, when is this like job offer going to come? And so I'm just like waiting and coming in and like getting people's coffees and like doing design work and staying late. Right. And, you know, at a certain point, I was like, okay, no one's mentioned anything. I keep coming in for free. Like, this has got to go somewhere. Student loans are kicking in. So I went in and they're like, you know what? We just like don't have a job to offer. All of a sudden you start seeing like the economy crumbling and like advertising is the first thing people cut. And so my friends who had graduated a year earlier um, were losing their jobs. Uh, The folks that I had worked with as an intern, we're losing their jobs. And uh, I suddenly found myself in a position where I'm like, I just spent a hundred grand on art school (laughs) to do this thing that like, no one's going to hire me for uh, because there's like, there, there are no jobs. So I was like, shoot, uh, what do I do? And at a certain point I was working three jobs, seven days a week. Um, I was a property manager to fill in some gaps I was like freelancing and uh, working at a bank and like doing all these things. And eventually I came across this job for like this one man startup. And I was like, okay, well, whatever. I'd love to have one job instead of three. 
Right. <laughs> but it, it's not advertising. There is like some design involved. Um, and so I went in, I interviewed at this job. And to be honest, it was like super weird. Uh, and working for like one very old man. Uh, <laughs> he's like, we're going to build this like business and it has to do with screens and we're doing like some sort of screens and lunchrooms. And I'm like, whatever, like, again, a single job is better than three jobs. So I take yeah. it. And, um, it was very eye opening. Uh, so I was certainly doing like some design work, but I had to be entrepreneurial as well. And like, you know, fill in a whole, you learn that when you join a small company or a two person company in this, uh, in this case, like you have to fill in the gaps and like you get to be creative in different ways. Yeah. Um, and so like, that was like my, my toe in the water of, uh, being entrepreneurial. And so while I was working that job, I was still freelancing on the side and I wound up taking this job. Um, another app, it was for a small advertising agency and they're like, okay, look, you're doing some design work at this like random place. <laughs> in the suburbs, would you like to do more design work in this sort of random place in the suburbs? Um, and I was like, okay, cool. But, uh, so I go and I switch jobs and, uh, by the way, this is all like an exercise of like, wow, I really committed to this one direction for yeah. years to like, I need to like accept the cards on the table and like take, take what I can get. Um, and so this, it had, this must've been around like 2010. So the economy was still pretty rough. And, right. um, so I take this job and I'm doing design work. I'm like writing a bit of copy here and there, but, uh, there was this one project that actually changed the trajectory of my career. And if I wasn't open or wasn't forced to, uh, rethink what I would take, uh, I, you know, my career path would have been very different. And so I had this project where um, I had to think about how someone uses a screen. And so this is like really before UX design is ever really deeply talked about um, or before it's like in vogue. And so I had to like design this kiosk where folks would like interact with the screen. And it was, it was cool because it was more than me like designing an ad. Uh, I had to like think about how someone interacts with the screen. And so like how far are they standing from it? Like, how big is the button so they can touch it? And it all sounds super geeky because it is. But I was like, oh, this is like a lot of fun. Like I get to like make this thing and people tap on it and maybe yeah. they understand it. Maybe they don't. And I was like, okay, well, what is this? What am I doing? And I was like, okay, this, I think this is UX design or maybe this is UI design or whatever label they were using uh, at the time. And so I got a couple of those projects under my belt. and. Um, uh, while the the job was like not my vision of where I wanted to be, uh, it did provide some opportunities where I got to try a bunch of different things, and I think that's important for anyone new in their career. Yeah, they really know what you want. <laughs> I mean, you haven't. You might know what you want, but there is like a spectrum of things that you can do, and uh, you know, being open to trying different things and like flexing different muscles, I think is generally like good as a human, no matter where you are in your career, but certainly very good uh, when you're early in your career. Right. Well, I had jumped into this project and I'm like, wow, I am still not getting paid <laughs> that much money. And I still have like these student loans rolling in. Um, and this is like the only good thing I can ever say about student loans is it kept me 
motivated to like, sure, I yeah. got to pay these bills and uh, it is very expensive. Had I known <laughs> that it would like attack me for decades later, I'm still paying these stupid things off. Um, so I hooked up with a uh, um, recruiter and she's like, oh, what you're doing is like kind of in the realm of UX design. Would you want to interview? for these design roles. And I'm like, sure. I feel so under, uh, under skilled. I do not really feel like I know anything about UX design. And, um, and and truthfully, I really didn't like I had a couple of projects and I wasn't really receiving uh, guidance on those projects, but, uh, I was so broke as the, the main motivator is like, sure, I'll interview for these jobs. And I, tanked. I can't tell you how many jobs, <laughs> interviews I tanked. I was like mortified. Um, I remember interviewing for um, this like one startup in Chicago. And I can't, I can't even tell you the name of the startup. And they had asked me like, what's my favorite product out there? And I was like, oh, I think Netflix. Cause that sounded like the right answer. And they're like, well, what do you like about Netflix? And I was like, just like, movies. <laughs> and it was, it was terrible. Um, so I guess my point here is like, I got a lot of, um, a lot of reps in with interviews. Yeah. So I was like, I don't even know what, like, what kind of questions do people ask for UX, uh, design and like, what are people looking for? And like, <clears throat> what do you put in your portfolio? Because, you know, advertising is very portfolio based. Um, and so is, product design or UX design. And, uh, but it's, it's a different type of thing that you show. Right. And, um, at least in what I learned at school, like, and this was before, like the internet was as giant as it is now, not that the internet didn't exist when we were younger, but it was pretty typical to have like a print portfolio that you bring into the, the job interview right. and like flip through it. And now suddenly I'm in this like digital space and I'm like, I can't, print out my websites or these apps because that's weird. And so what do I actually bring? Um, anyway, so I go through these like terrible, terrible interviews and the recruiter gives me feedback and it's like, I don't know if you're really like a fit for UX design. And so my soul is getting crushed once again. So I'm like, I can't be an advertiser. <laughs> I, can't, yeah. I can't be a UX designer. Like, what am I going to do? Uh, but she set up like one last interview for me at a company called Orbitz, um, which is now Expedia. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm so nervous going into this interview, but I have failed so many times that like, I'm just going to go in and not care and assume that I'm not getting this job. Yeah. And so I met the team and it was four people in this small room and, uh, they were, I'm happy to share this and I'm sure they'd be fine with me sharing it. They were just like the biggest weirdos. And <laughs> <laughs> they knew I like didn't know the answers to most things. Uh, but they, you know, they kind of joked around about it. And so like at some point someone asked me like, if you were a sandwich, what kind of sandwich would you be as part yeah. of the interview? And I'm like, all right, well, like, if I don't care how this interview is going and they clearly don't care how this interview is going, we can just like talk as people. And, uh, there was like a, a human connection there. And so I was like, 
I, there's no way I got this job, but I really enjoy talking to these people. At least maybe I made some friends. So I go home and I get a call and it's the recruiter. And the recruiter was like, you know what? They really, really liked you and they want to offer you a contract. And it's sort of a sink or swim situation where Interesting. you can learn on the job and like learn as fast as you can. And if you learn, maybe it turns into a full-time role or like a full-time like employee position. It's a full-time contract. And I was like, oh, oh my God, this is like changing the trajectory again of my career. And uh, this is also like tripling my salary because I'm making shit right now. Yeah. So like in my mind, like I can actually like pay my student loans. Um, and so I'm like, Super excited. I mean, it feels like you won like the biggest prize yeah. in, in, in your life. Like what else could, I'm basically the best again, obviously <laughs> I got this yeah. job. And so I have like this moment of like excitement. And then like the day of going to the office, it's like dread. And um, like, they're going to find out that I'm not smart enough to know how to figure this stuff out. And I've just, maybe duped everyone. And now I'm like freaking out that they're going to fire me in like the first week uh, and that they're going to find me out. And so I went from like, wow, this is great. I'm the best to like, I am the worst. What am I going to do? What I, I don't know what I've got myself into. And so I like my, my motto with my career generally is just like show up and just keep the, the only way through is like through. Um, yeah. And if you show up and you try, like sometimes it works. <laughs> so right. I, I went in and um, like, it, I'm sure it was very clear. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was pretty humble and was just like, tried to figure out where I could fit in. Uh, asked folks like, how can I help beyond whatever I'm doing? Like, at this point, like nothing is below me. I will do whatever you want. <laughs> be part of this team. Um, and I was so lucky that they were willing to take a chance on me. <clears throat> and uh, the good news is like, we tried it for three months and they're like, you know what? You like showed a lot of initiative. Uh, you're showing progress. We really love that. And uh, we'd love to extend a full-time job. And so I was like, oh, okay. Great. Like, I feel like I've got like another salary bump here. So I was like about to sign my contract and I was, I was very lucky um, because tech tends to be very male dominated and there. Uh, I love all of my male peers, but like, there's like social things that go, go with it. Uh, and my manager and the director of the department were both women and they knew that I probably wasn't thinking about certain things. And so I'm like, right about to sign it. And they're like, don't sign it. <laughs> don't sign this contract. And I'm like, why? Like, this is like, this seems like bananas money to me. Why would I not sign that? And they're like, okay, we're not telling you to not accept the job. But maybe if you countered with X amount of money, wow, you could make more money. Don't tell anyone we told you that. And now I'm again, it's fine. The company's been acquired. It's been like a decade. So I'm sure yeah. they're fine uh, with me sharing. 
but it was like the first time I had like real mentorship and someone yeah. who was looking out for me. And like, uh, it was nice to feel like I wasn't getting bamboozled just because I came in not knowing things. And it was very, they could have easily just like saved some money <laughs> by me yeah. it. But uh, I'm forever grateful for that mentorship and that support where they're like, Did, you don't know all the rules yet. Like you don't know yeah. the rules of like corporate America. Um, don't sign this. You need to do these things. Don't tell anyone we told you these things. Yeah. Um, but it felt good to have like management in my court. Right. So, uh, yeah, I would say like, you know, those, those folks, that whole team at Orbitz like changed how I thought about my career and um, thinking about negotiation and thinking about how you support each other. And so I had spent a couple of years or so at Orbitz and um, around the time I left was during the acquisition. They were acquired again by Expedia and I was truthfully just like getting a little bored working on travel um, because they were a big company at that point. And when you're a big company, you don't take big swings. I mean, you, you don't need to. You do incremental improvements. And uh, that's great from like a business perspective because if you've yeah. got hundreds of thousands of customers visiting your site every day and you make an enhancement and it changes things by like 1%, like financially, that's huge. But from like a enjoyment of your job at that point, I'm like, ah, I don't know if I want to keep just making like slight tweaks to the website. And so I had left and I was like, I really want to try startups because you get to build things from the ground up. And it was a, like a sh another culture shock. Um, yeah. Because the way you approach building a company um, is very different than what you do in a big company. And I had no idea. Like, it, it makes total sense now, like saying it out loud. But, you know, working at Orbitz, you've got like process and you're like thinking about every edge case and, you know, what kind of terrible ramifications could this have for a, you know, subset of people? Whereas a startup, you're like, what's going to eat me next? <laughs> what fire do I put out today? Everything's always on fire. Um, and you're building for, you know, maybe a primary set of people, but you're not building every like, um, I don't know. You, it's hard to think about every type of audience. You sure, build yeah. for one primary audience. And I did not come in with that perspective. I came in again with, well, this time with a bit of ego, to be honest. And uh, it got knocked out of me pretty quick. <laughs> so I, was like, hey, I came from this like big company. And obviously I know everything because I've worked at this big company for two and a half years. So yeah. you must listen to me. And um, I mean, that's just like not how it works. Uh, you just can't apply the same principles. You're not working with the same money. You're not working with the same size team. And uh, whether or not you're in design, it just like changes the way you solve problems. Right. So uh, I went to a startup for a short stint. And then I was like, oh, there's actually this like other startup that I've had my eyes on. Um, and they invited me in for an interview. And uh, at the, you know, the startup I was at, at the time, I was like, I culturally, I don't know if I 
fitting in as well as I'd, I'd like to, um, par- partially due to my own ego. Uh, the other part is just like, it was just a very different group of people. And that's fine. Like every company has a culture. Um, and so I went to go interview at Trunk Club. And uh, it was like another career defining, uh, career shaping moment for me because Trunk Club in Chicago, I mean, I don't work in Silicon Valley, so this may not resonate with like West Coast people, but in Chicago, yeah. you have like a handful of really cool companies. And at the time, you couldn't work remotely, which is pre pandemic. It's like, wow, this company is awesome. Like, they do such great design work. They're featured in a bunch of places. Like, I'm going to go throw my hat in the ring, but like, it's very unlikely that I'm going to get this. And um, so I go and I interview. I like, tank the interview. <laughs> it was so bad. Um, and I interviewed with all men at the time. It was, uh, the, the tech team was very male dominated. Like, I don't know if I'm going to even, if this is even going to work. So I just feel like we're speaking different languages. And I got a call and they're like, yeah, we'd like you to join the team. And I was like, oh, okay. wasn't expecting that. Um, great. And so I spent a couple years at Trunk Club. And, and the reason why I consider this like a defining moment was the way they approached creating um, businesses just generally it was like very customer centric. And so every time they built something, it was like, how would our member feel? Uh, how would like the human feel on the other end? And so I, I worked under this person who was a uh, former IDEO and uh, co-founder of the company. And like everything I had gone in with, uh, usually came in with a, a strong like business lens of like, how do we just get the numbers to move up and to the right? Yeah. Um, or like aesthetic lens, like, does this look cool? And uh, this really shifted my thought to like, actually, like, how does the person feel <laughs> using this? Like, are they do they feel better using our service afterwards? And um, I got very involved in user research. And so I would go and um, tag team with another person in the company. We'd drive out to our members' homes and we talk to them about how their clothes make them feel. Actually, this is what inspired um, some of Dibs. And, um, you know, we talked to folks of different shapes and sizes and how they felt about shopping for apparel generally. And like, you know, their body had changed uh, after pregnancy or they had a life event or um, they just got a new job and they want to feel confident when they go in. And I was like, wait a second. Like when I took this job, I, it was like, you know, another logo to add to my resume sash, I guess. If that's one way of thinking about it, like, oh, this is going to look cool on LinkedIn. Like people know this company. Um, but when I got into it, I was like, oh, we were like working with people's feelings. Like your clothing can feel very superficial. The way you look can feel when you talk about like makeup and what you're wearing, it feels very thin layered. But when you start talking to people about like, you know, how do you, how do you feel more confident showing up? And I'm not saying your appearance should be a hundred percent of where that comes from. Like, I, I hope you can source confidence from a, a few different um, channels, but the way people look really does uh, in 
just, I don't want to say inform how they feel, but it does play into it. And yeah. suddenly what was, what felt like just like slinging clothes was like, actually, no, we're making people feel better um, in some way when they show up to that job interview or when their body does change. Um, and I like to be a part of that. And like, I think there's just like an emotional piece where we can make people feel better than the day before. And so right. why not? Um, so I was there for a couple of years, uh, Nordstrom acquired them. And, uh, <clears throat> as with all startups, like <laughs> if you're acquired, like things change and the company was starting to feel big again and that was okay. But I wanted to go back to a small company. So I went to another, um, retail e-com tech company called ShopRunner, and that focused on free shipping and free returns. And I would fly out to different brands and meet with them and talk to them about their customers and what they were trying to do. And we'd build products for it. Um, and then, so yeah, I went to uh, a couple other companies and eventually before starting Dibs, uh, Lena did a company called Rocket Miles, which was owned by Booking Holdings. And I was their head of design. And um, the the piece there was like, you know, a, within the past couple roles, I've been a people manager. It was an aspiration. And I was like, wow, I, you know, I do care about people's feelings. I do care about, you know, how people feel at work. And like, there's a lot of joy you can get out of work. Yeah. Um, if you get the right support. And I think back to my mentors at Orbitz and like how valuable they were in how I think about taking jobs and negoti negotiating. And I, I just never had that um, in some of my other roles. And so I wanted to kind of like give back, give back. I wanted to try to do it. Yeah. <laughs> good. And um, yeah, so I went and I built up the design team at Rocket Miles and um, managed and it was fun and it was hard because it was the pandemic and the racial reckoning and um, just like a confluence of like all this hard shit as <laughs> like, I wasn't a first time manager, but it was a first time managing a team of that size. And like, certainly yeah. I've never gone through any of these like giant life events all at once. And I'm like, right. This is fucking hard and I am tired. <laughs> I don't know what to <laughs> tell people. We're all stuck in our house and I don't know if we're going to keep our jobs because we picked travel during the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was like, I, if, you know, anyone who's managed, it's emotionally draining. Well, I don't want to say emotionally draining, but it's hard to not be emotionally invested yeah. in the folks that you work with. And when everyone is going through it, at the end of the day, I was just like, oh, <laughs> so exhausted. And uh, it was, I mean, part of the issue is I was probably not setting up healthy barriers. Uh, so th that was a lesson learned. But uh, I was tired and I needed a creative outlet. Um, and we were all stuck in our house. And as part of my outlet, I, I like to make things. And so I was meeting up with some old trunk club folks virtually. And we were talking about just like how e-commerce and retail has changed over, I don't know, the past decade or so and how different it is. And I like getting my hands dirty with design. I lost a lot of that as a manager. And I would, as a manager, I would like really 
put a lot of energy into designing decks because like that was the only thing I had at the yeah. time. So like I actually like going uh, and building things after work was fun for me. And so I would like put some designs together and prototypes together and we'd show it to some brands that we just happen to have in our network. And they're like, oh, this is really interesting. Like if you made these changes, it would be more interesting to us. And we're like, oh, okay, cool. And I'd go and do that for the shopper side. And I'd put it in front of friends that I thought this might appeal to. And they're like, yes, this makes sense. I like this part. Uh, This part could be different. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll I'll just make some changes. And so we were doing this during the pandemic. I don't know, we met like once a week and just like got each other excited about ideas. And um, after a few cycles of, you know, let's make some changes, like let's build something kind of scrappy. Like, oh, well, maybe this is more than just like this side project that we're entertaining ourselves with. Like maybe this actually could be a business based on some of the feedback we were getting. And um, I was lucky that one of the folks that I used to work with um, had taken a position at a uh, VC firm here in Chicago. Oh, I guess like an aside as advice, like, meet as many people as you can talk to as many people as you yeah. can for your jobs. Cause you really don't know whose path you will cross with again. And like, um, you know, their path might take a turn and whatever it, it's good to be a nice person as a, yeah. <laughs> like it's like beat into me. Um, but it's also like a really this sounds, I don't know how to like phrase this in a nice way. It's like a, a strategic advantage to be well-connected. Yeah. Uh, being nice is part of it. Um, helping people is part of it. Um, and not exploding bridges is probably the other part. <laughs> um, so yeah, she worked at a VC um, and we were like, well, you know, Someone needs to be CEO. I didn't want to be CEO. No one in that group wanted to be CEO. And we're like, okay, well, let's go look for a CEO. So we went and talked to a bunch of other people. Um, and my my friend had uh, my now co-founder, uh, CEO Brock, in her network. And he was working at a startup previously and was look, considering leaving. And we went on like a couple like lunch dates, I guess, and just talked about our values and um, what was important to us and like working styles. And like, we really hit it off. And so like, okay, cool. So we like found money. We've got people, and this was pre, if you consider this a recession, we we found money, more people want to put money in the company than uh, we probably even need at this point. Um, I'm going to quit my full-time job because now I, I'll be taking a pay cut, but like I can transition. And P.S. I'm eight months pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> because why not throw in a bunch of life events at once? Of um, course. Yeah. I yeah totally forgot to mention that I was pregnant while I was at this, <laughs> at this travel startup. Um, yeah. So I was like, <laughs> a big part of the conversation was, do I want to leave a full-time job that is got a mothership with money um, for a startup uh, that I will certainly not get a real maternity leave uh, on. Um, and I would if I stayed at this travel company and, um, you know, I had to think about it because I was like, wow, this is like, 
this could be a really dumb move. Right. <laughs> or uh, this could be like a huge opportunity. And so I spent some time reflecting on, um, you know, different directions. And I came to the conclusion that I would rather ju- like start my own company with, you know, friends than stay at a company that I still, I mean, I loved, I love my team. I still love everyone there. Um, and my main thought was like, you know, if I were to die tomorrow, would I regret not doing it? And I try to keep that in my head as much as possible, like, you know, within reason, but like there weren't, I think it would be very hard to come across another opportunity where things lined up like that. And would I be mad at myself for not doing it because I was pregnant? Um, And so I came to the conclusion that I wanted to do it. I would not encourage people to like... (laughs) always quit their job, just start a startup while eight months pregnant, but um, maybe it's worth it for them too. So I put my notice in and I signed up for Cobra because big company insurance is good. Um, And I like started my first week of work and I was super jazzed because it's energizing to like make something. And then it shows up on the screen like minutes later and like, there was no red tape or gates to pass through. You just come up with it in your mind and then you build it and then you do it again. Right. And so all week I was like, man, like, this is really awesome. I'm having like the best time. And it was very like, very honeymoon phase. Um, and so I like closed up my laptop one day and like I said, I was eight months pregnant and there's not a lot of exercise you can do when you're, when you're pregnant other than walking. And so I used to go on these like daily walks to get close to my 10,000 steps because it felt good to hit the 10,000 and it felt good to like get out in the sun as much as possible, especially in Chicago. So this was last November and it was like 50 something degrees out. Um, so I go on this walk that I took every day or most every day and I passed the same streets that I passed every day. I looked at the same houses that I looked at every day. And um, I was going to go grab a coffee. And so I was like waiting at this intersection that I, again, have crossed every day. Um, The light changed. I got little crosswalk guy and uh, I start crossing the street. And all of a sudden I like get this crazy feeling on the side of my left face because I am getting hit by a um, van, like a, a truck, like a, uh, I don't even, a cargo truck, basically, like a sprinter van. And like the world just slowed down in my mind. I was like, oh my God, I'm getting run over right now. Like your brain does this very movie-esque thing where it's like, something is happening to me. You know what's happening. You're not scared. At least I wasn't scared. Um, and so I, I'm getting hit by this sprinter man. And then I got pulled under. And at this point, I, I lost consciousness. And it, it turns out that um, I got caught under the van. And it dragged me about a quarter of the way down the block. And people ran out to stop him. 
eventually I regained consciousness and um, I woke up in not any pain at first. I was just like laying in the middle of the street on the pavement, just being like, what the hell happened? Um, yeah. And like your senses, or I should, again, caveat to like, all of these are my experiences. So when I say you, maybe someone's experience is different. Um, my senses like did not come back all at once. Like I could hear people screaming and uh, I was like covered in fluid. <clears throat> and I was just, I couldn't breathe. I felt like I was suffocating. And um, yeah, I like the truck ran me over. It crushed all of my ribs on the left side. I had a collapsed lung, a ruptured spleen, uh, broken ankle. I got hit so hard, my shoes blew off. Um, so my shoes were like down the street. I had head trauma, as you would imagine, like getting slammed into the ground. Uh, and a bunch of other, I broke three vertebrae. Um, and none of this, you know, no one knew this at the time other than like, I looked really, really messed up. And yeah. um, I didn't have any ID on me because <laughs> because people were carjacking people <laughs> in Chicago quite often. And um, sometimes people would jump other people, whatever. We were going through a moment. Things are better now. Um, but I, t- I used to just like not carry many things on me outside of my phone. Um, one, because I could just pay with Apple Pay. And two, like I didn't want people stealing my stuff. It's just very whatever. And um, <clears throat> so someone called the ambulance or 911 and uh, they picked me up off the street. And, you know, what's weird is I don't remember anyone's phone number generally, but your mind is in such a state of shock that like you can retrieve things that you wouldn't normally be able to retrieve. And so someone was like, do you, um, who should we call to let you know that this happened to you? Like, what is your name? <laughs> what are <Hi>. you? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> can't even, like, breathe because I have one lung right now. Um, and I, like, squeaked out Brian, my partner's phone number. And I, if I didn't tell you Brian's number today, I couldn't tell you. But, like, right. your mind, like, opens up this Rolodex of... Uh, information and so they put me on the stretcher it was at this point uh, all the pain had kicked in and so it was i incredibly painful i can't even describe the type of pain it was um and truthfully in that moment i i just wanted to die and i know that sounds very heavy but when you're in like that amount of pain dying seems like a welcome option um, so they, they took me to the county hospital, um, and, uh, the county hospital in Chicago is Stroger. And the good part of that is like Stroger treats a lot of, um, trauma cases. So people who get shot, uh, things that like really, anything that really bad happens to a person, they triage right. it. Um, but it's also just like a, a very intense place to be. And so they put me. They, they rolled me in and um, at this point I had thought I lost the pregnancy, but uh, I didn't. And they asked me as I, they were bringing me into like the shared room uh, if they wanted 
me to, or if they wanted, they asked me if I wanted them to prioritize my life or the baby, which I was never expecting to be asked, especially on that day. Yeah. Um, And again, they didn't know what was everything that was broken. They didn't really know the entire situation. They didn't really have my name entirely. Uh, They thought my name was Amber (laughs) for a good portion of time. (laughs) And um, I just did not have the energy to correct them at that point. (laughs) So um, I sat there. There was a sheet between me and the next person. I think the person on the other side got shot. And then the person on the other side of the sheet, uh, because this was like a large room, uh, was having some sort of OD situation. And like people were screaming. I'm suffocating and um, they like didn't know what to do because they can't give you pain medication in the same way that they would to a a normal, a non-pregnant person. Right. uh, Exactly. The pain medicine may impact the baby. So I like laid there for what felt like hours in this like insane amount of pain um, until they finally figured out like baby is live. These are like the five major things that you broke. Um, So I'll stop there. And I guess the learning of this experience was, uh, you know, when I got hit, I've always been kind of career driven and project driven and really I enjoy work. Um, And I know not everyone has that luxury, but I, you know, was always a person that could take it to the next level where like it was, you know, my work defined me. It was my label. Like I am this person because of my work. These are the jobs I've held. Don't you think I'm important? Don't you think my status is good? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Don't you think I'm cool? Uh, Because I've worked at these places. Um, I can tell you like laying on the ground, none of that mattered. I wasn't like, man, I really should have done that presentation better or like um, I should have like nothing about work when you're laying on the ground, just like struggling to breathe enters your mind. Like you think about your relationships with people. uh, You think about your health and um, it was certainly like any, any grudges that you wind up picking up throughout your career. And I, everyone's got one. Like, I, I don't think I've ever met someone who's like, no, I, I've loved every <laughs> single person I've, I've worked with. Um, all of that stuff like goes away and you realize how much time you spend on things that don't matter. And um, I wasn't in like a, a place of regretting how I spent my time. I wasn't like upset with myself. I was just like, Oh, it's weird. Like work occupies my mind 90% of my waking day. And maybe I need to do better about, you know, bringing other things into the mix, like my relationships and yeah. um, people. Um, so anyway, I, I don't want to pretend like I was so enlightened in this moment. Cause again, yeah. I was like in a lot of pain, but, uh, Eventually, I was intubated while I was at the hospital, which honestly made a huge difference just to be able to breathe. 
and um, I got some level of pain medication and it was um, horrible and surprising and humbling. I was in the hospital for a month. I couldn't walk because I, uh, my ankle broke one of like a many of many things broke and, um, I couldn't like get up out of my hospital bed because I was, you know, I had another 30 pounds on me from being pregnant and your like body like atrophies while you're in a bed all day. But, uh, the part that I found humbling and like surprising and I, I have like so much, so much more love for is, you know, I've worked at all these jobs and I've always, you know, it's easy to be cynical about what you do in the same way that I had mentioned, like, you know, I'm just slinging clothes for this tech company. Like it, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really impact people's feelings or like it's very easy to abstract your way out of anyone's emotions. Yeah. And uh, the tech community in Chicago and just like the, the greater just friends and family and people I used to work with and people I never worked with, um, they started a GoFundMe, which by the way, I, I don't know what's going on in Canada, but like the GoFundMe saved me which is a ridiculous thing to to say, but uh, the way our healthcare system works is still a hot mess. Yeah. Um, and just like the the love they showed and the text messages I got and and the donations, uh, I was like, oh my god! I like never thought these people, these people. I just like I don't even know how to describe it. Like I, we all work together. I kind of put them in this work box. Yeah. And it's not that I ever had ill feelings towards this group of people, but I did have like some level of being cynical about tech um, for, you know, a bunch of different reasons. Like anyone gets cynical about their industry at some point. And it was, it was heartwarming um, yeah. to get those messages. And I just didn't expect it or yeah, I just didn't expect it. And so a few folks visited me in the hospital and kept me company. And uh, it really meant a lot. Like their participation in my recovery just made such a difference. Um, so I got out of the hospital after a month, still pregnant and baby's fine. Um, he is just like a tank of a baby. And um, I wound up going back to the hospital to deliver him. Uh, like a few weeks later. So just basically living at the hospital for for way longer than I would like to during the uh, second surge of coronavirus, because why not layer that on? (laughs) And um, yeah, I had him and I spent my first few moments of motherhood in a wheelchair. Um, I guess the, the other thing to being injured, um, I spent, I'll, I guess I'll take it a step back before getting into having Levi, my baby. Um, it was very eye opening becoming uh, someone who, like, I was so used to 
doing everything for myself with such ease. Um, I wasn't like none of my, my mobility was never dependent on anything. And suddenly now I'm in a wheelchair. I can't get anywhere. I live in a house from the sixties, which certainly did not think about wheelchair access (laughs) and just the, the challenge of like getting in and out of the shower or like being able to sit down or getting into a room or going to the bathroom and, uh, I've got like a, you have to walk up five or six steps to get into my house. And suddenly like my life went from super easy and convenient because I live in the city to like this obstacle course that I, I can't get anywhere or do anything. And even the few hospital trips that I had to make for checkups, like I couldn't just drive a car there because my ankle is broken. Um, I had to call like a special van to pick me up in my wheelchair and, right. uh, and God help you <laughs> like to get someone there on time so you can get to your appointment and like your life suddenly becomes so dependent on everyone else. Um, it was wild. And so I feel like it was this experience. Like I always knew accessibility was important. Um, what I didn't know was like, man, this is really, really hard. Like yeah. Chicago and I'm sure like most cities, you know, it was built without accessibility in mind. And suddenly like your life is like a million times more difficult. Um, anyway, just shout out to anyone dealing with that on, on a regular basis. Uh, that yeah. is, is very hard. Um, so yeah, I went and had Levi and, um, that was difficult because I had a, uh, like I said, broken ankle, I had a broken arm and scapula. Um, and they like tried teaching me to hold Levi with one arm, but (laughs) that is not realistic. And so I went and I got some, uh, doula care. So again, thank God for the GoFundMe because yeah. I don't even know how I would have approached having a newborn without <clears throat> without some extra help, um, a lot of extra help. And so, you know, at that point in my life, it was like an exercise of like, you just get up every day and you do the best you can. Yeah. And um, I had this doctor who was like, don't compare every day uh, if you're your day is better than yesterday. Great. But if your day is worse than yesterday, cause it's not like a linear thing, um, you know, look at it at a week to week basis and right. every week, hopefully you're getting a little better. And so I try to keep that perspective of like, all right, I'm having a bad moment and I can't do these things. Uh, I can't like get food for Levi without spending like 20 minutes trying to get to the kitchen. Um, or like getting someone to come in and help. Um, but next week I will be better and maybe I'll be using a cane. Um, and then after that, maybe I can like shuffle over there. And so, man, that was hard and I got through it. (laughs) So you just get through it. There's, there's nothing, um, I don't have great advice for folks who are going through tough times 
other than they usually pass. And um, the only way through, like I said, the only, only way through is thrift. An unbelievable uh, uh, journey and then, you know, punctuated by this experience of trauma um, that overlapped with two of maybe the most important moments in your life, right? When you start your own company, but most importantly, have your first child and you have this collision of, of, of all of these things happening at once. It's, you know, it really is a feat to overcome and go through that. And to be on the flip side of it, 10 months separated from it and, you know, sitting here talking to me about it the way that you are, I think it's, first of all, an incredible achievement. And, um, you know, hearing it for the second time now, you tell me parts of the story still as I'm listening, you know, getting a little bit emotional thinking about what I would even do if, for example, my wife, while she was pregnant with one of our children, went through the same thing. And I can't even imagine. Right. Uh, And it is just. It is a it is a harrowing story, but even as you're summing it up now and and going full circle on this idea of the only way through is through, and the idea of showing up in each and every day and just doing your best, and as the doctor kind of gave you that same uh, advice around, you know, day to day there may be ups and downs. You may move forward two steps, you may go back one step, but if week to week you're improving, if month to one month you're making even bigger strides, I feel like let's extrapolate that thinking from, you know, this traumatic event, but even just apply it to like a career. Let's say we threw that advice back at you in your first three month kind of, um, uh, test. Like, I think it was an internship or contract where it was basically like a sink or swim opportunity you were granted. And right in that moment, had you had somebody, your wiser self telling you that same advice, it probably would have smoothened out those first three months and bolstered your confidence a little bit. But like, that's a really important thing to walk away from this with that, you know, now hopefully anyone listening can, can apply to their own career or or life for that matter, without having to go through, you know, some of the trauma that you've gone through. Yeah. I think, you know, zooming out is such a, uh, it's a learned behavior. Like if you, if I were able to give myself that advice 10, 15 years ago, um, I might hear it, but you kind of, you know what? People might be smarter and wiser than me at that point in my life, but I, I would have heard it, but I don't know if I would have done it. But um, I do think it's true. Like you can, it's so easy to get fixated on something that's like not working right now. And like someone sent you a bad email or like you did really bad during a presentation or you put your foot in your mouth um, doing something else during the day. And you're like, it's easy to be hard on yourself. It's easy to be mad at someone. Uh, you know, maybe someone cut you off, whatever. But, um, you know, taking a moment and being like, is this going to matter tomorrow? Is this going to matter a week from now? Is this going to matter a month from now? And like nine times out of 10, no. Right. I mean, there are obviously certain life events where that, that does hold true. Um, but I think zooming out is something that you learn over time. Um, and it's certainly yeah. something I learned in this instance where I'm like, holy cow, I just feel like crap today. Uh, and it's hard to like, okay, but tomorrow maybe I'll feel better or next week, maybe I'll feel better. Yeah. Uh, getting people to root for you, no matter what you're going through and asking you to zoom out or, you know, helping you zoom out is 
you know, those are great friends. Of course. And I think, you know, to your point, whether you feel great today, you'll feel better tomorrow, the next week or the cases, I think it is still very important to recognize patterns in one direction or the other, right? And allow yourself to feel and then acknowledge the feelings, um, whether in life or in work, uh, because then, you know, particularly in a, in, if you extrapolate this to the to a work conversation, let's say, you know, it's very easy to just put your head down and continue marching through the mud. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, even though you've marched a mile, let's say you're still stuck in mud, right? And maybe life would be better if you were on grass, right? And so from that perspective, it's, you know, in saying that out loud, I think there's absolutely value in understanding that when you zoom out and look at the big picture, that a lot of the times, you know, those small things, the chaos on the curve, that that might be the highs and lows of a day could be frustrating in the moment, you know, in the in the grand scheme of things, to your point, right? They, you know, as you progress, they still net out in a positive direction. But, you know, they're they're just I, I'm very curious now, especially now, 10 months removed from from this, right? Clearly largely recovered from from yeah. a lot of the accidents and and doing well. And I'm curious now how you find yourself balancing, you know, post that experience with a 10 month old Levi in tow and, and dibs obviously growing and scaling and progressing. And, and that still is an enormous amount to, to be balancing today. And I'm curious to see like, what is your approach to doing so? Oh my gosh. Um, (laughs) I can tell you, I, I've not been great at zooming out, but I have been good about, you know, committing to each day. Um, every day has been different and, the trajectory is, oh, it's been nothing but positive or yeah. moving in a positive direction. So, I mean, you know, you have two kids, right? Yeah. The newborn phase is very, very hard. and Very hard. So Particular, hard. Particularly on the moms, right? Yeah. And there's no, any, any, anybody who says different is crazy because there's just nothing is a substitute for mom's love and touch in those first, you know, six to 12 months. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I would say in that moment, I was very tired. Yeah. <laughs> very, very tired. And I had taken a couple weeks off of work, but um, at that point I felt that I had taken so much time off of work between the accident um, and having a baby. And by the way, no one forced me to do this. Uh, and part of it was just like, I needed a distraction and needed somewhere to put my mind. Um, I would still like tinker with work to make sure things were moving, but also just, I need to do something other than, you know, be stuck in the stupid chair. Yeah. And, um, I mean, obviously love taking care of Levi, but I need some other creative input or like place to put my, my brain. Um, but today, uh, he is, yeah, he turns 11, 11 months tomorrow. Wow. And once we got past that six month hump, he's, he's just been like this little, happy baby who wants to get in everything. He's in a sleep routine and my quality of life has just gotten so much right. better. <laughs> um, so honestly, that's played a big role in it. And um, as far as Jibs has gone, we, I mean, it's been a blast. Um, certainly like getting out of the fog of medication and being tired has helped quite a bit <laughs> putting my, my mind to improving the company. But uh, we've went from like a handful of users to now we've got thousands of users and, um, you know, one or two brands to 60 plus brands. And uh, I feel very good about the progress we've made 
we've been able to expand the team quite a bit. So there are four of us full-time and we've got a few engineers um, in addition to our head of engineering in Latin America and they're amazing. And it's been nice to create like a new community from scratch. Yeah. Um, And it's, all you know, when you build things, it's fun to like see it out in the wild too. Of course. And I think dibs uh, is such an incredible idea, particularly because, you know, it makes the focus on its vision or mission to reduce uh, textile waste in the world, right? Particularly with fast fashion and stuff like that, right? And the, the general disposable uh, treatment of clothing and fashion uh, altogether, right? Yep. And then, you know, taking with partnerships uh, with brands like you've articulated with their dead stock returns, you know, other items, and then creating a community and a platform and outlet for those to then be, you know, redistributed into the world and facilitating that process. Just an incredible thing. And it, it reminds me of this uh, ad campaign that was really disruptive in, I believe it was in the UK potentially, where they had, um, f- imperfect fruit at a grocery store chain that oh, yeah. wouldn't make its way onto shelves normally and would just get thrown away and wasted, but it was totally yeah. fine. It just didn't look like the perfect banana or the perfect apple. And they yeah. built an entire campaign about this imperfect fruit. And it's like, yeah. this almost feels like a parallel of that, but to this part of, to this industry, and it's yeah. like an incredible spin and, and disruption in, I think, like retail and consumer goods, which I think is very cool. And the fact that it's scaling and gaining so much traction is, has to be so incredibly exciting for you as, as something that is both, you know, a, a becoming a successful business, but also like making real significant impact. Yeah. Yeah. I So imperfect produce or imperfect foods, I think, is like a great example of, of what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. Um, so we started with excess inventory just because it's like the easiest to to get a hold of. And um, you know, if you're listening to the podcast during late 2022, you may know that um, there are a bunch of supply chain issues. Right. And brands are sitting on all this excess inventory, whether you're like Target or a small brand. Um, and the the sad truth, and, and I'm not saying that brands are going out to do this like because they're evil or anything. But the, the sad truth is like a lot of products don't get sold or they just have too much of it. And um, they may donate it um, and write it off. Um, but often those donations wind up in a landfill uh, because there's just so much of it. And um, our vision uh, is to start with excess inventory, um, but also work our way into returns and products that are like you know, perfectly imperfect. So like a a thread out of place, or maybe there's a small tear. Um, And so, you know, I had mentioned I worked at a company called Trunk Club, which was apparel based and uh, owned by Nordstrom. And we used to do these warehouse sales, and we would sell products that we didn't feel were good enough to like sell for full price. Right. And we didn't want to show them to our, our general or like our typical customers. Um, because we didn't think they'd have an appetite for things that, you know, uh, may have like a scuff in it. So like if I return a pair of shoes, sometimes you'll see a scuff. They don't want to ship that back out. Right. <clears throat> so we'd have these warehouse sales and we'd offer like a pretty steep discount and people would just go bananas for it. And, you know, the the feeling of like, well, no one will actually buy this. We should just like get rid of it somehow uh, was like the insight to 
Well, actually, people are interested in it if it's the right price point and like some people enjoy fixing things um, or like it's not that big of a deal. Like you can easily rub off rub out a scuff or a shoe or maybe you don't care about the scuff in the shoe because you're just going to have scuffs in it anyway. Um, so that is that is what we're trying to tackle. And, um, you know, it's one step at a time and we'll see. Like, yeah. I think I, I'm really excited about what we can do. Uh, but we're certainly doing pretty well with excess. Absolutely. And and what I find really interesting about this, I just had a conversation the other day for this podcast with a, with a gentleman named Nicholas, who is the founder and managing director of a British watch company called, or manufacturer called Fierce. Okay. And he too graduated in 2008, I believe, right? And his, uh, you know, his entire education and life to that point was honed and focused and for him was to become an investment banker. And as we know, that industry was flipped on its head in that moment also during that um, uh, economic crisis. So there's this parallel of both yourself and he coming out out of their education, huge investment, enormous amount of time and focus put into working hard and becoming a perfect candidate for a specific type of role or job. And then that job in that industry just goes away, right? Yeah. And yeah. so he then found himself in PR and in a number of other jobs that he cycled through, but that collectively built the skill set, which I also perceive in kind of your journey to today, build the skill set that then like perfectly positioned him to do what he ended up founding and starting. And for him, it was revitalizing his family's like 200 year old watch company. And in this case, for you, starting this new, you know, disruptive and, and highly impactful startup. And it's bizarre to feel, to see this kind of commonality between two people coming out of the same tough circumstances, different parts of the world, right? And ultimately have kind of these weird parallel journeys where you end up building something yourself that answers all of the questions for you in terms of, am I delivering impact? Am I doing work that I love and care about? Am I working with people that I enjoy working with, right? And and it's, it's happened in different spaces, different industries. And I don't know, maybe in reflecting on it and hearing me say that, do you think there is something simply unique about people who came out into the world and started becoming adults in that moment in time around that uh, economic crisis in 2008? Yeah. um, Yeah, maybe. I (laughs) Sorry, that's probably not the most direct answer. Sure. Theories on like, you know, the businesses that do really well come out of a hard economic right. uh, position. So like you look at the startups that began in 2008, um, some of them just like thrive because it forces you to get scrappy. And maybe that is true for people. Like um, it forces you to be a generalist. It forces yeah. you to do things that you're not comfortable with. Um, and it makes you learn. And uh, I don't think unless you're forced into I think for most people, if you're yeah. not forced into it, then you just don't do it because why? <laughs> like, why would you make yeah. your life harder intentionally um, if you had a vision and dream to do one thing uh, and that is still the path open, like the chances of you making a detour voluntarily unless something really came up uh, exciting. Like, yes, I think that there is something to it. You know, and I, I really do appreciate and thank you for your vulnerability because it's been incredible, incredibly refreshing across this entire conversation today. Because even as you articulate that, that the average person, if not forced to learn or change or grow, sometimes 
there isn't that. Not everyone has the insatiable appetite to grow and immediately yeah. become a CEO of some crazy corporation or whatever, right? You know, there are, are many who go through or go in and out of waves of learning or have periods where they just need to stabilize, right? And there are moments that just push you out of that bubble and comfort zone and force you into that, right? And I think that that is important to acknowledge, even as people become leaders and, and you know, lead people, you yourself saying that you led a team, right, through an incredibly different, but incredibly challenging moment in history also. Um, and you have to acknowledge those moments for people's kind of journeys and when they're in that learning curve versus like, you know, I need stability curve yeah. type of thing. Um, and that's, a, I think that's an important thing to say openly because oftentimes in conversations like this on the podcast, it's usually just, you know, no, I, I, I'm incredibly passionate about learning. I constantly want to learn. Right. It was like, I think the balance of that is important to acknowledge also, um, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah. I wish I, you know, I have moments of like, oh, I'm totally in a growth mindset, but most of the time I'm like, oh, I want to learn something new and I don't feel like doing it, but it always, it usually turns out to be a good thing. Yeah. I actually can't think of an instance where learning something new was a bad thing. It's just, you know, the energy of doing it yeah. uh, sometimes stinks. But that's the human aspect of it, right? Yeah. We're not always operating at 99 or 100% yeah, we're energy. Not a yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's uh, it's not like a telecom network that has to operate at like 99.9999% uptime or whatever it is, like the five nines that they have. So like, Totally. And, and, and I think that that is really important to acknowledge and, and, um, and understand both for yourself as an individual, that's okay to go through that range of feelings and experiences, but then also as a leader of people, if you are a leader of people in an organization or otherwise that they're, you know, the people you're leading will go through that as well. I want to, you know, circle way back into the uh, part of your career around orbits when, you know, that moment when you had those two female technology leaders that brought you on and stopped you before signing a contract. Because I think that is such an incredible moment that you articulated. Yeah. I've never, I've never heard someone have a story like that. I think, you know, that must have massively shaped your approach going forward to both how you managed your career, but then also how you helped others around you manage their career as you started leading people. Can you just talk a little bit more about that maybe? Yeah, it was um, it was my first time feeling that uh, a manager or a person I reported to felt like they were more in my court than yeah. the companies. And right. you know, it's a that is a tough line to toe sure. uh, in their position, but with them, you know, it felt good. I had a I had an emotional connection to them. We got along really well. And uh, we had a lot of similarities. And so when I became a manager, I tried to have like those, like an actual relationship with yeah. the folks that, uh, that we, we work together. Like we are a team. Um, I happen to be the manager, but like we're all doing different things. Um, and so, yeah, relationships as part of, um, Sorry, I'm like rambling a little bit because I like what, how did this change things other than I know it changed things? Uh, yeah, I think just like relationships matter and treating people as humans and not, you know, you are one of 10 people or 20 people on my team right. and you must do X and you are a cog. And like, if you don't perform, you are fired. And, uh, you know, we all have strengths. We all 
have different backgrounds. Um, we all have different contexts. And so having those two managers be like, you know what? Like you clearly have not done this. Yeah. <laughs> and no one in your life is guiding you to do this, not out of like ill will, but like they don't have the context either or like background. Yeah. So PS, don't sign this. <laughs> um and yeah, so I try to take a, a human approach to management as as much as you can. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And I think it, you know it, it harkens back to another comment you made that it, there is a strategic advantage to being a nice person in your career and in life, right? And the idea that you know people that you making as many relationships as possible, which you articulated also, and building a network, being nice, being amicable, and a good human in, in all directions. Because to your point, you never know when you might reconnect with somebody from your past and your paths have taken totally different directions that now are mutually beneficial as you've experienced. And I think that that is an incredibly important, but very simple thing to walk away from this conversation with for anyone who's listening is like just being a nice, good human or person goes a really long way, right? Obviously it has to be paired with, you know, merit-based performance and delivery and all those great things. But like, if you start with the foundation of like just being a good person, you're already kind of two steps ahead. And I don't think there's a better example of this in the moment, right? It's November 22nd, but we're in the middle of this outrageous Twitter fiasco with Elon where, you know, he tells a bunch, thousands of people he's never met before that like, Hey, you're going to have to hunker get down and go into hardcore mode or leave. And then everyone proceeds to leave, right? Because they don't have a relationship with a guy who stepped in and just basically flipped their world upside down. Um, and he's not being very nice. No. Uh, so, right. you know, a lot of people like him right now. Exactly. Which, you know, is, is, um, it's an interesting moment in time for sure. But I think that that's a very powerful sentiment to walk sentiment to walk away from. And, you know, I think one thing for me that is just amazing in having this conversation with you and having the opportunity to chat with you is just your incredible positivity around some of these moments that you've experienced both pre that traumatic accident and then during and then since. Uh, and I think that is really refreshing. And I hope that anyone who's listening, you know, doesn't wait until their own traumatic happening to have some of these perspective shifts in their both in their life and their career. I think they're both valuable and can be done, you know, sooner than that. And, and uh, yeah. so, you know, having said that, it has been an incredible pleasure chatting and I appreciate you being willing to share your story and your career journey and personal journey. And I honestly look forward to reconnecting in the future and seeing to, you know, the scale that the dibs have grown to. And I have no doubt that it will. And hopefully having you back on the podcast. So thank you. Yes. Thank you for having me. This was fun. 